Rimache first invites us to enter into these teachings in the spirit of Bodhicitta, turning our minds to the uh, studying and practicing the teachings with a view to establishing all beings through the infinity of space in the utterly perfect, totally pure, and most precious state of enlightenment. <laughs> In our studies of Dharma, then we are looking at these three main levels of vow and at the third level, which are the vows of the Vajrayana. So, in our study of these vows of Vajrayana, there are many sections defining their essence, their different categories, and so on. And what we were looking at yesterday afternoon and again this afternoon is in the section which is um, the vows which are to be kept or to be uh, maintained. Uh, yesterday, in looking at the vows which have been made to be maintained in Vajrayana, <coughs> we saw the um, common commitments or samaya which there are for that there are for the uh, five Buddha families, and then also we looked at the fourteen root downfalls or the fourteen main things to protect against in the higher yoga tantra, and today. We go on to look at, apart from those 14 root downfalls, what are called the eight secondary downfalls. The first of these pledges uh, refers to Vajrayana activity that takes place with a consort and in this case it is to consort with a consort who doesn't has not received the empowerment and the instructions and who is therefore not holding the same samaya. Mm-hmm. 
These um, eight secondary downfalls occur in the context of the highest yoga tantra. And one of the specificities of the higher yoga tantra um, is that um, it uses, it can use uh, circumstances uh, normally related to the defilements, so that is what is called the path of desire and the strongest path of desire is sexual union. So it can use that, transform that into sacred purpose and actually make this sublimation of sexual energies something which makes a very rapid path to enlightenment. And although um, that is the case, then it needs to be done with great uh, um, precision and in all the right circumstances. So in the tantras, we have an outline of just what those circumstances are, including how uh, the mind or the being of the consort should be. Sometimes there are many descriptions, eightfold or different. Here, the uh, main uh, downfall uh, points to the main fact is that the consort should be someone who is equally initiated into the practice, equally dedicated, and therefore holding the samaya of that practice. Mm-hmm. 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 
So this is really inappropriate behavior during times um, where the behavior should be focused and serious. So it could be when the teacher is giving a teaching, teaching the Dharma, then rather than having one's attention focused on that, then you're joking with the people you're sitting with, or if it's not joking, then you're getting into discussion or argument. And that could be during a teaching, could also be during a ceremony, during a ritual, when one should be visualizing, focusing on whatever the object of that ritual is, and instead it's involved in either personal banter of distraction or in getting involved in squabbles and fighting, saying you shouldn't ought to do that, or this is not done this way, you've got that wrong, um, in, in an argumentative way, not in just a way of trying to get it right. And then uh, the third one is to accept the uh, to accept the nectar of a consort who is not worthy. So that is one who doesn't fit in with what is described as worthiness, worth within the tantras. So during the, in, in the various levels of Tantra, many of them uh, have this aspect of practice which is done with a consort. And then when that's the case, sometimes part of the practice involves the exchange of substances such as the, uh, the long life pills, the nectar that is being... Um, that's been prepared for the ceremony. And then, again, if one receives the nectar from someone, or the long life pills, or whatever it is, from somebody who is not at all the right person, uh, right person as specified in the tantras, then that's this third secondary downfall. Mm-hmm. 
So then uh, the fourth one is failing to give teachings to somebody who's worthy of them and ready for them um, for any uh, well, it's failing to do that so uh, the example will be if somebody's very skilled at something, a skilled craftsperson and they're unwilling to share their skill because maybe they're thinking afterwards other people will get the work that they would have had or they'll no longer be the only one who knows it or whatever it might be then if somebody is ready and ready for the teachings and the master has the teachings then not to give them is uh, this secondary downfall so then the opposite of that is when somebody is seen to be ready or asked for something and then afterwards is judged to be ready then to give them the uh, corresponding teachings uh, whatever it might be the fifth secondary downfall is to fail, is for a master to fail to answer sincere questions uh, with the proper authentic answer instead just to use the question for playing around, making jokes, uh, making some fun um, in other words, not answering not answering this could well be because the teacher actually doesn't know the answer and then because either they've not understood the question or they don't know what to say for the answer they haven't got the answer then rather than being honest about that then to turn just to turn that round into some sort of joke or divert the dialogue into something else through playing, joking And um, so, like, like now, for instance, when they're in this course, um, 
people ask questions and um, it's not always easy to understand the questions because people are different all over the planet. They think differently, the way they see things, the way they live, the way they express things um, is quite different. So it's not always easy to clearly understand the question, where the question is coming from, what the question uh, actually is. So, uh, from, uh, from his point of view, then, uh, of course, this makes understanding the questions and finding just the right answer very difficult for somebody who doesn't know how people think and take and live and quite what the words of their question mean. And if I can add to that, this is really felt when you're translating because he, he has a very precise mind from all of his logic and if there's the precision of his mind in the question, he can give a good answer. But when he's trying to translate the sort of way we think, uh, which is, doesn't correspond into questions that make sense, it's very, very difficult. So anyway, he says that then what is where good answers can really be given is when people have done the practice, something comes up in their practice, experience. They voice that real experience due to the practice. Then there's a very, very good chance he can give a precise answer because this is his field of expertise. And once we're in that world of practice, then what will happen uh, is fairly clear for a master such as himself. And in the practice, then this is why 
we need to do things one step at a time because the very first practice that we had in the morning sessions, which is uh, being aware of the mind in its, in its stillness, then uh, this will give rise to questions and then if people say, ah, oh, this happened or whatever it is, and then he can say yes and then take it on from there. Uh, but if they've not had those series of experiences of the mind in stillness, then when it comes to the second one, the mind that's moving, any questions will be intellectual questions. They'll be hypothetical questions, thinking about it questions, because without the actual experience of the first step, the second step can't emerge. And as he said many, many times, it's, there's like learning the alphabet. You need to start from the beginning, learn the first letters, A, B, C, and go on. Or like with the Tibetan letters, Kakaka, the first three letters, and then afterwards you can read the Kanjo, the Buddha's teaching. So when there are real meditation questions coming out of direct experience, then that's a fairly mm, safe area for him to answer in because uh, he knows what's happening. The answer will be directly experience-related and should be very beneficial. For the other questions, then it's much, much, much more difficult. He hopes that the answers he gives are of some benefit, but he has no idea whether they actually hit the mark whether they actually correspond to the answer that's really needed in our own lives um, or not, it's very, very hard to say. The sixth secondary downfall is to stay for more than one week in the home of, um, which is in the home of a Shravaka who has contempt for Mahayana. So this means somebody, uh, Shravaka is one type of Buddhist, but they're those who have no, who disrespect, those who have no respect for the Vajrayana. And in fact, here it says those who disrespect, who look down on the Vajrayana um, for whatever reason. So if there is such a person, then not to stay more than a week with them. Otherwise, there's the secondary downfall. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
The reason for this is um, reason for this this vow, this commitment, is to protect those whose minds can still be influenced, and um, so staying for a long while with anybody brings a likelihood of being influenced by the way they think and talk. So in the specific case of this um, vow, it talks about the shravakas um, because they, if it happens to be a shravaka who not only doesn't have respect for the Vajrayana teachings but actually looks down on them, doesn't think they're a benefit, then if uh, there's a danger for some people that by them being with them and being with them and seeing what they do is good because it's certainly very, very good. There is nothing but goodness in keeping the Pratimoksha vows, living that way. One might gradually lose the view and the perspective of Vajrayana. And although that's what's specifically mentioned in here, it is a general point, even if it's not to do with Buddhists, like this particular Shravakas that are mentioned, it's true that with people who, any sort of people, um, then if somebody's mind isn't strong enough, being with them tends to take us into thinking like they do, seeing things in the way they do. And uh, then one can lose the view, the inspiration to practice, one can lose one's samaya, uh, and so on and so forth. That's, that's the big danger. So they might, although we're dedicated to all the Buddhist principles of protecting life, not telling lies, a uh, certain type of uh, avoidance of sexual misconduct, whatever it might be, then if you're influenceable, staying with people, you can start to see it in a very different way. I think, oh, it doesn't really matter if one you know, kills some beings, uh, if one is not totally truthful about this, whatever it might be, there is that uh, danger. Or this uh, heartfelt practice of compassion, where one's praying and dedicating oneself to compassion so much, one might, someone could get to see that from a very different way, different point of view, and, and uh, then not believe in it so much. Then you know, Dumbadi, that Dumbadi, no, no, ah, Ronya, Tawachipachi, Madani, Madani Yonder, that's here and la, there's a gong here to share, gone back on dinner, that Ronya, Dojinaba, the seventh pledge is to 
present oneself as being an accomplished tantric practitioner when one uh, doesn't have much experience. So this could be somebody who's done a bit of deity visualization, for instance, and uh, on the basis of having done a bit of practice like that, then they're acting as though they were a vidyadhara, a wisdom, excuse me, a wisdom holder, somebody with um, a much deeper view and experience and skills than they actually have. That is the one. Runya now actually this is a you may remember we've come across this sort of thing already in the other vows um, it's one of the root downfalls or one of the main downfalls um, through all the precepts which is lying about accomplishment and uh, it's, it's, a, it's a natural downfall when there is a self-centered intention of, uh, behind it but um, so here it's a secondary downfall it means giving the impression that you know more about the practice than you do or that you've gone further in the practice than you actually have. It might not be doing that in order to really gather disciples or with some big intention. But it's something that um, you know, leads us to reflect because uh, outside of the Vajrayana deity practices, then we have Mahamudra, and Mahamudra is really so intimately connected with a true understanding of the mind a true recognition of the nature of mind, of the, and the, which means the true nature of all things. And so to give the impression that there's some understanding of Mahamudra when that uh, innate and, and vivid and full experience is not uh, there falls into this uh, category. Yes. So here, some The eighth and the last of these secondary downfalls is to give untimely teachings. Untimely means that uh, they're the they're the, what can you say? Get this right in English. They're the, they're the wrong, I can't say wrong teachings to the right people or the right teachings to the wrong people. Uh, it just means when somebody is not suited, when someone is not suited, then to those teachings, but you're giving them. Uh, so it's 
giving uh, Mahayana teachings to the Shravakas or giving uh, advanced teachings to those who are not advanced enough and so on. ที่ลอยเขี้ยวละบาดะตากะริจิโรโกกะบาดะเจนะที่จิติตองเตทะเมงอดุยานี้เดขิจะตาติจิเชกิโยบาดะตะลานะลอยเขี้ยวละบาด
This question of timeliness or appropriateness um, refers in one way uh, to the general explanations, and here we're talking about uh, tantras, so this will be giving uh, an explanation from the traditional tantras, the, the scriptures for each tantra, uh, from what's called the Tantra Pitaka, the collection of different tantras. It will be to give those um, in this downfall uh, to people who aren't really suited to hearing them. That's one sort of fairly straightforward meaning. Another meaning is a little more complex and a little more difficult to fathom. Um, And there, it's the difference between uh, the words and their actual meaning. And not only that, all their various possible meanings. So this is not just giving the teachings on the tantras, which embody the ideas, but also transmitting the ideas plus the oral instructions. Now, the oral instructions um, depend very much on the master's own experience, mastery and insight. So it can be, or it is the fact, that there are very many incredibly learned Buddhists who can sit down with a text, tantric text, any text, and give you a fantastic explanation. They can go through word by word, idea by idea, and uh, they'll make it sing and dance beautifully with the way that they give an explanation. But even though that's the case, and what they say will be very interesting and doubtlessly not in contradiction with the Buddha's teaching, 
It's very different from a master who has the true insight through practice. Because then that master, even though it might not be an incredibly erudite presentation, each word is full of meaning because each word in that text has been experienced and savoured. And then because of that experience, they'll see it in a very multidimensional way. They'll be able to draw out this meaning and then another dimension of meaning. So this is how um, this is also a, a great gift of a gifted master. And so it does distinguish between these two sorts of untimely explanation. There's the untimely giving transmission of a particular text because the person isn't right, the circumstances aren't right. And then there's not just the formal text, but there's the imparting of inner instruction at the wrong time. Now, one example of this could be taken from the Mahamudra teachings we've had in this course. We've seen many times now very clearly the first step is the mind when it's um, at rest. And then what we're ideally doing is meditating on that, getting some experience. That experience would go back to the master, be questioned, and so on. And at the end of that, all of our apprenticeship with the mind at rest then there'd be a pointing out of the mind at rest, a confirmation by the master. Having master and student both, having gone through that process, then um, that's the time to go on to step two. And it's the timely, it's the right time to give the teachings of step two, then when there's some experience of step two by the disciples, then to give some of the oral instructions that bring it to life. We can start through our own teachings in these last days, we can understand this timeliness. So with that, we've come to the end of this brief journey through some of the main aspects of Vajrayana uh, commitments that we usually call uh, Samaya. Mm-hmm. 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 Ki Mm-hmm. 
Tikasa, We've seen um, with those uh, Vajrayana vows uh, what there is to guard and then uh, what it is that causes them to be lost. And the consequences of losing Samaya once uh, you have it are grave. Consequences often are depicted as rebirth in the hell states, in the worst of the hell states. And the way that's described is like a bamboo. Um, we can either take it as the bamboo, a bamboo either goes straight up or straight down. Uh, there's only two ways. If it was all hollow, we could make that even more vivid and say that inside a bamboo tube, you can either go up or you can go down. There's only two possible directions. So then keeping samaya is what takes us up very quickly, straight up, directly up, but then losing it, then it falls down to the deepest um, depths. And it's because Vajrayana Samaya is so hard to keep that the great master Atisha, when he went to Tibet, um, didn't teach much Vajrayana at all. Although in India, when we look, he was a very, very accomplished Vajrayana Siddha and great master. Uh, when he went to Tibet, he taught very widely the Pratimoksha vows. He taught quite a lot of the Bodhisattva way and the Bodhisattva vows, but then he wouldn't teach the Vajrayana vows. And he says that um, teaching, if I teach this, then people, they won't be able to maintain it. And thinking that if he gave the vows, and then people couldn't keep them, there'd be an incredible amount of downfall and loss, then he restricted his activity mainly to the Pratimoksha and the Bodhisattva levels of teaching. 
And the reason for this is that um, the pratimoksha vows, they relate to conduct of body and speech. And relatively speaking, for that reason, because it's very clear-cut, it's very tangible what they're about, then they are easy to keep. It's uh, because it's what we're doing with our bodies or what we're saying with our mouths. Compared to that, the bodhisattva vow is much more difficult because it's nearly all related to the mind. It's particularly related to the mind of compassion, as we've seen, that's oriented towards enlightenment and the sake of benefit of all beings. So it's very easy to lose that. It's very easy for the mind to drop out of compassionate care. Very easy for the mind to drop out of its inspiration for enlightenment. And um, for that reason, keeping the bodhisattva mind is a much more subtle and difficult affair. The mind is ephemeral, changing. And then in Vajrayana, we have the commitments that are absolutely all-encompassing, body, speech and mind. They're related to the practice and the various ways in which the body should be identified with the deity at all times, the um, speech with the mantra, and the mind with the mind of the deity, which is the dharmata, the very essence of all things. So it is incredibly hard to maintain that. It's easy to lose that ideal vajrayana. And then, as we've seen, we have uh, the worst cases, which are the root downfalls, where we really lose our connection with the practice through our behavior. ที่ละมาตรีคงเยสดรมากลงเตียนบอลันเพนันนรดาญาปุญจุติเตียนบาเพนทุญจูเซอเยสดรมีลงเตียนนี่บอลเพบาเรคงฮีเจยงปอดเ
but that if he did go, his life would be severely shortened. If he didn't go and stayed in India, he would live to a very ripe old age. If he went to Tibet, his life would be shortened. I think it's more, less than 20, more than 20 years shorter. And unlike us, he had no self-interest. His immediate response was, if it's really a benefit to beings, then, then I'll go. And he went to Tibet. And uh, so this person who went to Tibet was extremely gifted at himself a Mahasiddha. But when he went there, he saw uh, that giving many Vajrayana precepts would lead to many people breaking them. So he himself knew the how how complex and subtle it is to maintain the Vajrayana commitments, and so he himself would never retire at night without first having confessed all of his Vajrayana failings. And he had a, a wooden mandala, it seems, so he would make a mandala offering and confess his Vajrayana failings uh, every day. So then that is how the Vajrayana vows are. They can be repaired and restored. So by doing that every evening, no day had gone by when he had um, broken his vows and because of that his own conduct was most immaculate. Then Domba Casson Mm-hmm. 
Jardina, that in an indirava, shallagin, itirava. Tisu, Kira Shalu Lapanos. Um, we saw in the um, in some of these vows that uh, there needs to be or we saw in most of the vows yesterday there need to be four conditions that are met for there to be a breakage if you remember there needed to be the basis the motivation, the action and then uh, if it wasn't uh, confessed or rectified within one session then it was a downfall as far as that is concerned for these vows, then we have four degrees of um, whatever you could call it. We'll see as we go along. Four degrees of error, let's say. Uh, the first is called mm, going against. You can probably find a better word, but uh, so. It's contrary or going against the vow, which means that if the galliana di chapuje, if if within a day we've not rectified it, so like like we just heard about Atisha, within every day he confessed and purified his vows. If if we let it go beyond a day, then we've con- not contradicted. We've gone contrary to the Samaya. If we let it go for a month without repair, then we've damaged the Samaya. So the second level is damage. If we let it go for a year without any rectification, then that's called going beyond, not in the good sense of the word, but it actually means uh, it's almost like gone beyond any possibility of Restoration. That's what it's called, gone beyond. And then the fourth level is if it's more years, like two years or more, then that's called collapsed. So we've got uh, gone against, damaged, let's say far gone, and collapsed. Total collapse of the Samaya. Tati, <laughs> Mm-hmm. 
ยมนะรงกดอนยุเลรงกดอนเลจุเลรงกดอนเลจุเลตาตินิเชนีตินิดอนบายงสาติยาเฮตินิเชจุบาริตาตะเมนะยงมารุสดอนบะอุนีตุ
It's the second instance of damage, which was, what do we call it? Damage, was it? First one was going against, that was one day's worth. A month's worth, what word did we use? Damage, yeah. If there's been damage, then uh, there one uh, restores or repairs with the Gana Chakra, with the offering feast, but there you have to give all your possessions in the offering feast. Whatever you have, money, objects, everything, goes into the offerings. Mm-hmm. ジチ if it's the third offense, which is going very far beyond, um, so in other words, when it's gone for something up to a year, around a year, then not only does all one's own direct wealth need to be transformed into tzok and offerings, but any wealth that one has influence over, um, I'm trying to get the difference between that and the second one, and actually the way it's described is not only what is directly yours, but what belongs to your wife and your children and your relatives, anything that you have control over, so it sounds like a fundraising trip around the family to make big amends for the damage that's been done. Then you 
Tapi rong so kena, dah rong so ni, kau pakai kawari, dah rong so ni nak so, dia, mana tak ni nak dah, kau pakai kawari, mana rong so lutong ni kau pakai kawari, dah rong ni kaki kari dia nak rong so kaki dia buat cerah, tapi dia nak ni rawan dia buat susu teri dia nak so kena, dah rong so tong ni. อือฮะสู้กันนะเพียงเฉพาะตรงนี้ก็ไม่ใช่ก็อะไรแต่สู้ตัวกาเชื่อกันนะงูพูดเอาไอ้กาเชื่อมาเรื่องสู้ตัว
korosu mashe sire dime korong hidini su jesora kareze wajo to o ta 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 lama ya po dong ti zama di sia jimanga dong ti wa ki usi kuso gogti do machong gara korong hinu sona ta korosu ke sona sona injira te inje ta yo korong sono ki ora ta sono tonto mari oya pena malala karise ki wadi dina na tropotomo mundi honta ko sene peyo korosu ke gadu oya ki sono tonto se no korosu ke ki wadi tiho korong ko karere sono ko gadu dina gache do tani mundi pa to sene dunga su ke ki bare jilla tangandi mundi uni lutendi te do ya pore ma sun sono su ke ki bare chongo Takarisi kan suci dengan anda macam ini, anda dengan anda telas orang tua kan? So, um, if uh, normally for most people in this this life we have is the most important thing, nothing more important than that, and they couldn't at all see the point of giving up your life, um, uh, uh, giving up your life, and but in Buddhism and Dharma, and so therefore in Vajrayana, this life is one amongst very, 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 very many. We've gone hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands of lifetimes in a world of illusion and ego clinging. So if there is some possibility in the next life of getting out of that, there's nothing more important. Lives come and go. So if this particular life had to be lost, but then that's in a perspective of getting it right next time, then that has um, a lot of sense. And so then I asked, does this mean, what does this mean? Does this mean like killing yourself? And he said, well, when it was Naropa and Tilopa, then uh, he was totally willing to give his life. In fact, it didn't happen. He was restored. But it's that willingness. It's this... Uh, total dedication to the objective which is purity and accomplishment and not a concern for this life this body which is part of ego clinging ま、もんぼどろそうで借りてきてくれてな、が、どうもしょうどんがろん、どんどそうてきてくれ。んで、そうてじゃで、せんちゃくどんどそうてきてくれ。借りてきてくれてな、そんはがどんば、しょうじせ
so if the motivation for this is correct, then it shouldn't be so shocking because we hear many cases of people who commit suicide and it's not at all like that. It's because most suicides are self-focused. It's because of the anguish of what's going on in the person's mind and their wish to put an end to their own suffering that they commit suicide. Here what we're looking at is a situation of wanting to restore something that's for the benefit of all sentient beings. This particular life is of secondary importance to a wish to be in a state of mind, a state of being, a situation where we are truly working for the sake of all beings given to all sentient beings. So if there's been a serious lapse, we lost the vow and for such a long time, and we realize that because of this, we've lost our capacity to work for sentient beings, and we're just longing to restore that capacity to work for sentient beings and to be in that healthy place, uh, then this, is the re- this would be the reason behind that, if it happened. This is the explanation. And then Rimte goes on to say, if we look at the former lives of Buddha, Shakyamuni, then there are many times he gave up his body he gave his body to the tigress in order to feed, uh, always with this mind caring for other beings, caring for the, uh, the, not just in that story, many stories, he gave up his life in order to benefit others. And then on account of that, his own evolution grew and grew and grew and grew. So there's a very big difference between self uh, ego-focused suicide and offering one's own body to get back the next life into the right place. So this has uh, finished I think, the explanation on the vows. Mm-hmm. On, the, on the losing the vows, and now we look at the benefits of them. Mm-hmm. 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 
The benefits of maintaining the Samaya, the Vajrayana commitments, um, are both for oneself and for others. Um, If the Samaya is kept, then even if one's prowess as a meditator is not terrific, but if the vows are properly kept, the bond is kept, this closeness of Samaya, then at the most in 16 lives, 16 lives, then there'll be enlightenment, it said. And then, then also for some of sharper faculties, so who keep the vows, but then also their meditation is of, uh, let's say, more efficient, then it could be in seven lifetimes. And for those who have a really terrific practice, then it is possible to achieve enlightenment in one lifetime, which means that depending on the faculties of the practicer, uh, very good, middling, or not so good, then there's a time difference in how long it takes. But in any case, the journey to enlightenment is very quick. And the main secret is maintaining this uh, samaya, this closeness, to the practice, to the teachers. So with that, now we have come to the end of this section on the Vajrayana vows, and indeed to this series of teachings on the three levels of vows, self-liberation, Mahayana, and Vajrayana vows. Mm-hmm. Now we'll reflect a little bit on the way that one person, because we're each one person, how one person can have these three different types of commitment. Uh-huh. So, the way this is seen varies uh, from one yana to another, from the Mahayana to the Hinayana. Mm-hmm. And the reason for this is that each of those two yanas, Hinayana and Mahayana, have a different understanding of the nature of reality and of the nature of mind.
So therefore their view about the purpose is uh, different. The difference lies in how mind is understood because if mind is understood uh, to be something uh, of substance, something with a substantial base, something that exists, then in that case when we take the vows, the vows themselves have a certain exist, uh, uh, reality of existence. If, in the other view, we think of the mind as being shunyata, as being voidness and having no tangible, substantial existence, then the vows that that mind is dedicated to also will have no substantial existence. So the understanding of what a vow is in its very nature is different from one jnana to the other. So in the Hinayana understanding, the vows are things in themselves. It's like acquiring something. When you take the vow, some thing with a certain idea of substantiality, not necessarily solid materiality, but it's an actual thing which is acquired and remains. And by that very way of understanding the vows, as we take one precept, two precepts, three precepts, more precepts, then it's like building up one thing on top of the other. Now, of course, that Hinayana view will only apply to the Pratimoksha vows because they don't take the Bodhisattva vow or the Vajrayana vows, but that's the way they see their vows. If we're talking about somebody who is taking all three levels of commitment, then that necessarily means somebody with the Mahayana view and in the Mahayana view, the mind is not, does not have any uh, existential reality. It is not an entity in itself. And so we don't need to think of the vows as each being different things with their own specific uh, entity. In that sense, they all come from the one essence, which is the void essence of uh, mind or void essence of reality. They all have the same nature in that respect. So the actual um, philosophizing and discussion around this can become quite complicated 
It was in India, it was also in Tibet. So it's probably not the time to get into all of that just now. Uh, But what do we need to know? How do we need to understand this ourselves? Well, rather than going into the details, maybe through an example. So, if we think first of the Pratimoksha vow, then if we take the example of that being like um, iron, iron ore. So then the Pratimoksha vow, when, uh, when we take the Bodhisattva vow, then it's not as though the Pratimoksha vow is lost and abandoned, it's transformed. We might even say upgraded these days, it's transformed. Mm-hmm. So then, uh, if we go back to the example, which is the iron ore, by smelting the iron ore, by putting it into the fire and so on, then what we get out of that is pure iron, pure iron. And so, whereas before the nature of what we had was stone, now the nature of what we have is iron or steel, iron. And um, so, like this, the Pratimoksha precepts um, are not so much, are not lost, what they are is transformed or sublimed, smelted into the Bodhisattva commitment, which now has a new character. Mm-hmm. 
Then, uh, when we move on then to take the Vajrayana commitments, then it's not as though the Pratimoksha and the Mahayana commitments are left aside. Once again, they are transformed or upgraded. And in this case, it's like the alchemical transformation of iron into gold. And we have stories from India of the great uh, masters who had the alchemical secrets for transforming uh, iron into gold. So then, just like that, once we adopt the Vajrayana commitments, they imply the Mahayana mind and the uh, self-liberation commitments, but the whole thing is now sublimed. It may be a good word. It's transformed upwards into some noble substance. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe there isn't that much alchemical transformation of iron into gold around these days, so maybe it's not an example that works for us all that well, Um, although we can understand it. So let's take something a bit more tangible, which most of you might be able to see, which is the bell which is on the table here. And... um, can you see the bell? Or you know what a bell looks like. And then that bell at the top is made of brass, but the lower part is bell metal. And uh, so bell metal is in fact um, an alloy of quite a few different metals. So if we take this analogy, uh, first the different metals that go into that, like iron and like copper, um, each of those comes from its ore. So we start out with the ore, that's the analogy for the Pratimoksha vows. Then the ore is smelted and we get the pure metals. So that's like gone up now to the uh, Mahayana vow. And then those different pure metals are fused together uh, in a very special way that gives this bell metal with its very particular qualities of sound. So this is refined into something much more noble and special. This is like 
becoming the Vajrayana vows. The point is that they are not three different things, but it's uh, starting from one basis, then there are transformation to give us three different products, as it were. ตอนนี้ก็มาถึงช่อเมียนะน้องบ่ายืดซะบาดิตันเราก็ซอดาจะดอมบาดะน้องบ่ายเราก็ตะเมะซุนายุตอนนี้ที่ยอดสงจิเ
but the particular form that they've been during one's life is, is lost. There is a change there. The vows remain, but the form in which they've been practiced or held is transmuted. Uh, perhaps it's easiest to approach it through examples like this, because if we start really thinking about the mind and what vows are, and how those vows coexist and what happens to the mind at death and so on and so forth become very complicated. Ni it's perhaps easier to see it like that because otherwise if, we're, if we have a more solid view of the vows, more substantial view, even if we see them as stances or attitudes and we start to think of the one which is the uh, pratimoksha commitments as one mind, one mentality to maintain and then the bodhisattva mentality, that's, a, that's that sort of mentality and the vajrayana mentality, it's that sort of mentality. How can three minds or three mentalities coexist. So if either we have some sort of more solid view of those things within us or if we think of them as stances and attitudes, however it is, it can become quite uh, difficult to fathom, become quite complex. So now, and with that, uh, uh, it looks like we have come to the end of these teachings on the three levels of vow. Uh-huh. And we have a few minutes for questions, if you have any questions. Uh-huh. <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> 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 So la tagendo den audition for your job. Drink. Nice bit of meat. <laughs> Alla, 
ซูจิงโคโลเซจิตาติจิกตองตอเตเปจัจจิโมเฮจิโอบาเรอ๋อยาเตราเนปาวกาตองปามิกาตองเซอิยามุโมโยบาเรเฮจัจจิเนเปอ
Tini, ta, non ta de segana, non giova corona. Non mi sono nuovato, non mi sono nuovato. Tanto non mi sono nuovato. Tanto non mi sono nuovato. Tanto feast are concerned then it's only a proper Ganachakra feast if they have the view in which void, voidness and manifestation are totally integrated if they see manifestation as one thing and voidness as something else then their view is not suitable for practicing the Tsok ideally <laughs> so then, well, we've got a clue to that from the Mahamudra teachings Rinpoche has been talking about, about getting to know the mind, getting to know the mind, you know, in those different stages, getting to know the mind is manifestation. So it doesn't look like we got there yet. So it's that sort of understanding of how manifestation is mind, mind is void and so on. That sort of realization would need to be attained. (laughs) 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 So then, this is enough to give you a, a headache if we think about all that we need and this Mahamudra qualification to really practice uh, <laughs> so that's about the people having the feast about the feast itself well it boils down to stuff to eat and stuff to drink One represents skillful means, one represents wisdom. And then because all the time in Vajrayana we are thinking in terms of the union of wisdom and skillful means, then the eating and drinking uh, is done together. So what is there, what is represented by the actual feast goods, uh, the stuff to eat is representative of the five meats and the stuff to drink is representative of the five nectars. <laughs> so, uh, by the look of it, we're old Dharma practices. We've been around for a while, so we probably know what the five meats and the five nectars are. <laughs> Mm-hmm. 
Worldly people are by their very nature very attached. And when it comes to feasting, eating, drinking, then normally they're attached to what they're eating and drinking. The very nature of the Tsok feast is that is to be totally beyond any attachment. And so for that reason, uh, what is eaten and drunk is consecrated by the ceremony, by the visualization, by the view. And this consecration takes the whole process of eating and drinking, this wisdom and means, uh, beyond uh, worldly desire and attachment. <laughs> so, thinking about those things when we do go through the sock ceremony might help us just approach it a little bit, approach the true uncontrived nature of a sock feast just a little bit. Apart from that, uh, the explanation of the Tsok, the Gana Chakra, in the uh, uh, Tantra Pitaka, in the scriptures of the Tantras, is, uh, very, is developed in great detail. Maybe at some future time, Rinpoche will have the possibility of um, explaining it to us, but obviously not today. So now, um, from beginning this time up until this life, and in this life, we've made 
many, many mistakes. Uh, those mistakes don't, didn't do us any good. They were negative karma. Their consequences are pain and suffering uh, to come in the future, the ones that aren't resolved. And then um, in this life, then we've made many failings. We've hurt other beings. We've hurt ourselves. We've done many uh, harmful things. Uh, in terms of Dhamma, sometimes uh, our practice is good, sometimes it's well motivated, and uh, sometimes it's not. Sometimes our thoughts are negative and aggressive and so on. Some people uh, sometimes are involved in explaining Dharma, and very often our explanations are not good enough or they're not true to the Buddha's teaching. There are often many mistakes uh, within them. Uh, and then in the meditation and our Vajrayana practice, we've had commitments, the commitments we've seen uh, explained in these last uh, few days. And keeping those commitments, sometimes keeping them perfectly, immaculately, is very, very hard. And so there have been many failings of one sort or another in our commitments. And so then now at the end of this course, uh, what Rinpoche would like us to do first together is to do some uh, Vajrasattva meditation, a mantra recitation, with a view to the purifying of all of those different things, and specifically also within this course, any inattentivity, any poor motivation, any failings in explanation, uh, from my part in translation, uh, then we'll do that. And if you don't know the Vajrasattva meditation and mantra, uh, then it suffices to do the Om Benza Sato Hum, Om Benza Sato Hum. And the main thing is that in the depths of our heart we really uh, release ourselves from all of those past uh, failings by facing them, regretting them and shedding them, letting go of them. Sadhana, 
ตาตาละที่มาสุจิปาติเกี่ยวอยู่มุมบุษอยู่ปาริฮะฮะฮะฮะฮะฮะฮะฮะฮะฮะฮะฮะฮะฮะฮะฮะฮะฮะฮะ
Also, since beginning this time until this life and during this life, we've done very many positive and virtuous and good things. And then, in particular, in these last days, we've been here together studying these two topics, studying the Buddha Dharma. Rinpoche has done that as best as he can, with the finest intention he could master, and he's been giving us the traditional teachings on these two topics. The translator has toiled, and then also all the people attending these teachings have given up lots of their precious time. They've come here, they've listened with good motivation, uh, with a, a keen a keen heart, and a wish to benefit and bring benefit from these teachings. And so all of that is very, very, very positive. And when something is so good in that respect, then what we do is to share it, to dedicate it. So like a drop of water that's placed in the ocean that can never dry up, when we dedicate the goodness, all of the goodness from the past up to now, and then the goodness of this particular teaching session, uh, course, then uh, we dedicate it not for our own benefit, but we dedicate it with a loving heart for absolutely each and every sentient being, wishing for them to truly benefit from all of whatever goodness we've managed to achieve. And then not only that general wish for all sentient beings to benefit, but in particular those who are those great beings who truly benefit the world. And by this we don't just necessarily mean the Rinpoche's, the Tukus, the Kempos, uh, who are the official ones, but anyone who's really benefiting beings in any place. These are very precious beings, and so we pray or we dedicate any of this virtue with the wish for their long life, their successful activity in the world, and that they may dwell long in the world because their very presence is something that brings goodness to so many people.